Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. What would he like for dinner? He just loves chocolate cake. Go ahead, try one. All you have to do is follow the recipe, roast and bake. It says cream butter until soft and smooth. Cream the butter? Better get the cream. This is going to be easy. Ladies, gentlemen, this is the master class. It's me, Chef H.C., and we're cooking with gas. First things first, let's start that prep. Got the culinary thirst, take it step by step. Dice the onions and chop in the knives. Beat meat by a crunch and chop up his chives. Okay, I think I'm ready for entree. All right, we're cooking with gas. Or are we? As you probably know, I don't know how you could have avoided this particular skirmish in the culture wars. But let's just say you did. <laughs> Over the past couple of weeks, uh, there has been this kind of insurgent sense. Uh, well, let's sort of we can start over on the right. There's this notion that somehow or other the U.S. government, specifically the Consumer Product Safety Commission, uh, wants to ban, and that is the word that is most frequently being used over on the right in the media, uh, to ban gas stoves. Um, not so much because of their role in in uh, climate change and global warming, uh, more because of the po- the indoor pollution threat that they pose, especially as a trigger to asthma. I think I have this culture war uh, pretty well summed up. Uh, but don't take my word for it. Let's uh, let's go to one of the 952 Fox News stories <laughs> that have aired about this in the last two weeks. Okay, I made that number up, but I'm not far off. This is uh, A5. Kat, you're going to hear Fox business correspondent Madison Allworth, who is standing at a, at a stove in New Jersey attempting to cook an egg. And by the way, at the end of this whole thing, she kind of admits that she doesn't really cook that well. Uh, anyway, uh, here we go. Bill, what's going on is I'm cooking up some breakfast on this gas-powered stove. And according to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, a stove like this one could be banned soon. You know, that's a big concern because across the U.S., nearly 40 percent of homes like this use gas for home cooking. Here in New Jersey, 69 percent of those homes use gas for cooking. So that obviously a big concern. We saw that word ban and obviously many people, many folks very alarmed. So, um, <laughs> I mean, the problem is kind of built right into the quote, but joining us right now is Rebecca Lieber, who for years has been covering uh, aspects of this issue, uh, senior climate reporter for Vox these days. Rebecca Lieber, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. So you heard the Fox uh, News or the Fox Business correspondent say, we saw that word ban, and obviously many people, many folks were very alarmed. Well, the problem is that the word ban is kind of inaccurate, right? I mean, what has been discussed would be something that applied only to new construction, not the stove you're cooking the egg on in New Jersey right now, right? You're right. It's completely inaccurate that anyone is banning the gas stove. Um, What the Consumer Product Safety Commission is potentially doing (laughs) is looking at a range of options around the gas stove. A ban even in new construction is very unlikely at this point. The the Consumer Product Safety Commission said that in a follow-up statement. So 
that Fox News segment was just wildly inaccurate and fear-mongering. It has a lot of company. My my favorite one that I listened to today, at one point, Glenn Beck on his podcast is saying, uh, he talks about how Biden, uh, he talks about Joe Biden, and he goes, you know, his Consumer Product Safety Commission wants to protect you from everything. And I thought, the Consumer Product Safety Commission was signed into law by Richard Nixon. It's not Joe Biden's consumer. But, it, but everything gets politicized these days. But one of the things that you've reported about, which is just fascinating to me, is that we we don't come by this debate uh, in an entirely above-board, honest way. Going back to the 1930s, the gas industry was sort of implanting ideas and motifs and memes uh, in, into the American consciousness about the idea of gas. Maybe you can say a little bit more about that. Yeah, so this idea that gas is better than electric cooking is so pervasive now. I think we all just assume it's a fact. It's it's always been true. But I've dug into decades of industry marketing, um, including newspaper ads, including commercials. Um, and it's amazing how many of the things we take for granted today originated as PR campaigns from the industry. So going all the way back to a century ago, the very phrase cooking with gas that now people just use to mean all kinds of things, that was an invention of a gas industry executive. And working with the comedian Bob Hope at the time started incorporating it, incorporating it into his routines. From there, we uh, in this story I reported out for Mother Jones, tracked how 1950s and 60s, there were these commercials featuring celebrities as housewives talking about the gas stove as the way of the future, that it's cleaner and better for you to cook with than electric. And so, some and, of those commercials, I'm sorry to interrupt, but some of those commercials seem to be pinned to things like the New York City World's Fair, right? The, a moment when you contemplate the future, the the vastly improved future. And so, yeah, you've got some, you know, sort of medium tier actor talking about, about this, but also you're, you're tying it psychologically to the idea of things are going to get better. Yeah. So th this idea of where gas, where did we get that gas is better? This has been a battle by the gas industry and appliance makers to gain market share for a long time now. And um, it's it's funny to consider some modern campaigns in that longer context, because today the gas industry is still paying social media influencers to talk about how great the gas stove is and how superior it is. Uh, at the beginning of your program, you aired this amazing song <laughs> promoting gas cooking. Um, that isn't really from the last couple of years, but there's some incredible raps dating from the 80s <laughs> by the gas industry. Well, actually, let's hear a little something from the 1980s. Kat, this is A1. We'll play a little bit of it and we'll fade it. Gas! Yes. Cooking with gas. gas. Cooking with gas. gas. We all cook better when we're cooking with gas. gas. Gas is so hot it's not on when it's off. It's the only way to cook. That's what I was taught. Now here's a fact you should have to know to pass. Now not a ten chefs. I just want to say that is the whitest rap I have ever heard in my life. But um 
And I just want to go back to something earlier because I don't want it to get lost in the shuffle, Rebecca. But, um, but yeah, back in the 20s and 30s when radio was king, um, Bob Hope and Jack Benny also on his program, they were encouraged and uh, probably financially incentivized to use this phrase cooking with gas as a metaphor for doing something well and quickly. Now we're cooking with gas. Uh, I don't think that it's really much of, much in the common parlance these days. But for old dinosaurs like me, it's very a familiar idea. That's now we're really going. We're we're rocking and rolling here. Whatever it is we're doing, we're doing it with alacrity and prowess. That's what cooking with cooking with gas was meant to mean and and did mean for for a long time. And I just find it amazing <laughs> that it doesn't come into our language honestly. Yeah, it's it's amazing how much it infiltrates our our just our culture and i think gas has become this this fashionable icon in our kitchens so let's talk a little bit about the debate itself and 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 kind of how it it politicized very quickly this time around. And just to give you an idea, uh, let's go to A2, Cat. This is a tweet. We're going to have Cat Pastor, our technical producer, uh, read these tweets. We are actually already recorded her reading these tweets. Uh, this one comes from Texas Representative Ronnie Jackson, who I believe at one time was Donald Trump's uh, doctor uh, from January 10th. Uh, here we go. I'll never give up my gas stove. If the maniacs in the White House come for my stove, they can pry it from my cold, dead hands. Come and take it. So there's a lot of this kind of stuff. Uh, and maybe we should just talk a little bit uh, about what this debate is really uh, about. So let's look on the one side of it. There, there are conversations going on both at the municipal, state, and federal level about what could be done about this. Could maybe sort of say a little bit more about the reality. What's the concern and what might be done? We've already sort of talked about that a little bit. What might be done to address that concern? Right. I think for a lot of people, this seemed to come out of nowhere in the last few weeks. But really, there's been this years-long campaign um, at, at the municipal level and state level looking at a couple different aspects of our gas appliances. So one of the big ones is this overlooked effect on our health that we are combusting a fossil fuel inside our homes. And this, a lot of the time, these aren't very well ventilated spaces like our kitchen. So you have this buildup of the pollutants coming from the gas stove. And I think science and scientists have known about those problems for years, but I think as a public health discussion, it's been really overlooked. So that's something that that local and state regulators have been taking a closer look at. But there's this other aspect to this fight, and that's climate change. Gas is releasing methane, which is a powerful greenhouse gas, into our atmosphere. When you're burning gas on your stove, that's methane. And we, as long as our buildings run on gas, they're going to contribute to the climate crisis. So cities and states looking at what they can do to address this greenhouse footprint are looking at electrifying new construction. So that can include the gas stove, but also appliances like the furnace and boiler that use a lot more gas. Um, so there's a few different levels to this fight, and the gas industry <laughs> is worried about their future profits, and it's fighting off these electrification campaigns so that they continue to feed gas to homes. Yeah, we should also say, for example, in the case of your stove, um, even when it's off, it's leaking gas. Um, it's leaking gas from the fittings. It's probably leaking gas 
uh, right from the, the ring itself. Um, so it, there's methane uh, being uh, leaked out. But I thought also um, Emily Atkins made a great point in her terrific newsletter, Heated, where she compared this to the conversation about plastic straws. And she said, you know, when plastic straws were, you know, a big thing, there were people who were very concerned about the climate who said, we're talking about the wrong thing. Plastic straws don't make that big a difference. And the counter argument was, yeah, but we're talking about plastic. We got to talk about something. You got to talk about something people can conceptualize. So we're talking about plastic and its role and whatever percentage it makes up of the plastics problem in our oceans and elsewhere, you know, is almost beside the point compared to the fact that we need to begin the conversation somehow. And one sense is that, I mean, her argument is that that's kind of happening a little bit with the gas stoves, too. It's not that the gas stoves are the biggest problem, but it's a problem people can conceptualize. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that's right, that I hear that a lot in response to my reporting from readers um, asking, well, what about these other appliances or what about gas at, at our power plants and coal at our power plants. If you switch to electricity and you're running on fossil fuels, is that really any better? And yeah, I would say that the gas stove is a powerful symbol for a lot of the problems that um, from health to climate impacts that come along with gas use. This is something that people actually feel emotionally attached in a way that maybe they don't care so much about what powers their heating or or hot water. Um, on the electrification point, which I do hear a lot, I just would like to take a minute to explain how this works. The idea behind electrifying our buildings isn't necessarily, depending on where you live, that they will immediately run on renewables. But what we do know is over time, they're going to increasingly be powered by a renewable grid like wind and solar. And coal is shrinking as part of that footprint. But if you're feeding a new pipeline to a building, that line is going to be there for decades more. There's not really much we can do about it. So this is also a conversation about infrastructure. When we're talking about the gas stove, we are talking about building out infrastructure for the next century and which choices we're making between um, relying on renewables and continuing to rely on fossil fuels. Right. I think it's a great point, and it's one that that I've heard you make before, and and I don't hear a lot of other people say it that way, which is, yeah, the the grid that you're plugging into right now, anytime you electrify something, it might be a little bit dirty right now, but it's year by year by year by year, it's going to get cleaner. And it's hard to imagine that there's a comparable way to do that uh, with gas. Gas is going to be gas, and maybe you can tighten up the fittings a little bit and stuff like that, but you're, you're still dealing with methane, and methane... Uh, you know, is an incredible climate warmer. I mean, it, it by orders of magnitude is, uh, you know, a, a tremendous threat to the environment. So let's talk a little bit about the pushback, too. Uh, and, and to get us in the mood for that, because not all the pushback came from Republicans, although we could argue <laughs> that this doesn't necessarily prove that point. But uh, Kat, this is A3. Let's hear Kat Pastor reading from Joe Manchin's Twitter feed. This is a recipe for disaster. The federal government has no business telling American families how to cook their dinner. I can tell you the last thing that would ever leave my house is the gas stove that we cook on. Now, to some degree, it does feel as though we've, we're have we almost like, 
you know, a rabbit that blundered into a trap, right? They set the trap back in the 20s and 30s by, you know, creating a certain kind of emotional valence uh, around gas cooking. Uh, and, and now, to whatever degree we care about indoor pollution or climate change, I, I do feel like we walked into a trap a little bit uh, in the sense that they have a pretty easy uh, way to beat up on proponents uh, of concern uh, about this issue with, once again, something ca- people can understand really well, a stove, Rebecca. Yeah, this fit really neatly into the Republican narrative. We're hearing a lot about that this is an attack on freedom. So um, I think the gas stove just instantly became the next <laughs> the next symbol of that. But um, there's a few few things that I'd point out about Senator Manchin's comments here. One is, like we already discussed, no one is taking away his gas stove. <laughs> he can continue using it, even if if he does, in fact, cook on it. Um, he is His stove is certainly safe. Um, a few other points is our country isn't entirely reliant on gas in the way I think Republicans have cast it. So if you look at um, stats for the Southeast, for example, States are actually hugely reliant on electric for cooking, not gas. So when you hear Governor DeSantis say um, similar comments as as Manchin, that he would protect the gas stove, what's interesting is Florida is actually among uh, the states most reliant on electric for cooking. Um, so there's, there's a lot going on here in misinformation um, and there is a lot that could be done to protect public health, for example, without banning the gas stove. There's a lot we can do to increase ventilation, for example, um, and also just increasing public awareness can go a long way here. Um, so, yeah, I, I just would like to add that Manchin's concerns are can all be addressed here, um, but I don't think that's the point here to have a really reasoned debate. But don't you love the fact that they keep kind of using the language of guns? You know, it's sort of you'll pry my cold, dead hands off my, you know, before you take away the gun I was going to use on you when you came to get my gas stove. Um, but but it's sort of like gas stoves, they're the new guns. Um, so we should talk a little bit. So as a result of your reporting and the reporting of other people, I spent a certain portion of my morning in my kitchen, which is a very tiny kitchen, um, measuring the space to see if I can fit an induction stove into where I have like a really horrible electric coil burner stove, which is like dying anyway, and it's going to have to go. Um, but so talk a little bit about in- induction. Induction would seem to be the thing that addresses some of the concerns of people who feel they need gas stoves because of the kind of quick changes in temperature and uh, ways in which a a certain kind of precise uh, temperature-driven cooking can be done. I'm not even sure I could explain what induction stoves do, but I know they use magnetism somehow. Yeah. So you mentioned that you have this old electric coiled stove. That's the kind that I think when we think about electric today, that is the, the awful kind of cooking that most people hate. That's not what we're talking about with induction. Induction instead is using, like you said, a magnetic field to conduct ener- energy into the pan itself. So instead of uh, in traditional electric stove heating up um, the, the appliance itself and then heating up the pan, the induction stove, the, the pan is itself 
getting hot. So people who have induction actually point out that the glass top itself doesn't get that hot. It doesn't, it's, it's really hard to burn yourself on that because it's the pan that's getting hot. Um, the other benefits of induction include that you don't breathe in that gas, of course, um, but other things I've heard from professionals who use it, that it can be very precise, that you can use it to an exact temperature, and it can be a lot faster at doing things like boiling water than the gas stove. Um, induction can be expensive, but there are a range of options. Um, so, some people might want to do a full renovation or replace an old stove. And in that case, one thing that they might be able to consider is looking at if any Inflation Reduction Act tax credits or rebates may apply to you. Um, but if you're not ready to do a renovation or you rent, a lot of people have been using these plug-in hot plates that basically it's an induction cooktop that you can just either set on your countertop or on the stove itself. And that is a much cheaper option than doing a full renovation. So I like to just talk about the range of options because not everyone is ready to just rip out their appliance. But I think there are different price points for people to consider. Right. A range of options. I see what you did there, Rebecca. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just found out about those things on Wirecutter today, um, the, 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 like the individual burner things, which is great because if you own a four-coil uh, burner stove, one of them's dead. Like at any given moment, one of those coils is not working. So that's where you put the plug-in thing. Um, and I, the other thing I would say is – yeah, I mean, I guess if you're renting and stuff like that, it, it changes the picture. But you can get an induction range for like 1100 or something. You can pay 4000 really easy, but they're not like cripplingly expensive. I mean, you know, if you're going to do some kind of renovation or something, I guess that's easy. Yeah. But, you know. And I will point out that there are um, some of these aren't available just yet. But if you um, make under a certain income, um the Inflation Reduction Act might cover the total cost of a renovation, so that's definitely something to consider. Right. Actually, I'm gonna we're gonna try to get into that with our very next guest, uh, and so we're gonna take a, a break now. But thank you so much for your reporting. It's just all this stuff about the implantation of, of this idea is just fascinating to me. Uh, and so, Rebecca Lieber, a senior climate reporter for Vox, we're gonna take a little break. We're gonna come back, and we're gonna sort of talk a little bit more about how this feeds into the larger climate debate. Fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire The taste of love is sweet Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. It's too darn hot, it's too darn hot I'd like to sup with my baby tonight And fill the cup with my baby tonight I'd like to sup with my baby tonight Fill the cup with my baby tonight But I'm not up to my baby tonight Cause it's too darn hot all right, so uh, we're going to continue the same conversation we had, uh, but in greater detail with uh, Daniel Cohen, uh, Associate Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Rice University and author of Confronting Climate Gridlock. Uh, welcome to our conversation. I should say that Daniel wrote for one of our favorite public, uh, publications, The Conversation, uh, a piece quite recently about why gas stoves matter to the climate and the gas industry. Keeping them means homes will use gas for heating too. So Daniel, maybe we should start there. Uh, you know, I, you might have heard, I don't know if you heard the first segment, I was talking to Rebecca about the comparison of gas stoves to plastic straws. It's a way of starting a conversation about something. But the, the reverse of that is having a gas stove is also a way of keeping a particular fuel delivery system in place. Maybe you can say some more about that. Right. And thanks so much, Colin, for being on the show. Um, yeah, that exact reason is why gas stoves are sometimes called gateway appliances, is that it's the gateway to using gas for so many other purposes in the home. And we need to separate the impacts they're having on, on health and on climate, because with health, the emissions of the air pollution, the nitrogen oxides are coming right near where we breathe them. And so they're a very major source of air pollution within our homes affecting asthma and other outcomes. For climate, on the other hand, they're trivial. We uh, burn a minuscule amount of, of gas on our stoves. Um, they aren't a big source of climate warming pollution, but they're the gateway that gets us bringing in gas for heat, gas for water heating. And those are really the dominant ways that we burn natural gas in our homes, but they're not right next to where we're breathing, right next to where we're cooking. So by starting the conversation here, on the other hand, we kick a tripwire, an invisible tripwire in the culture wars. And it's one about kind of a certain kind of incrementalism. And it's something that can be lumped into a very specific style uh, of, uh, of rhetoric. Uh, we're going to now hear one of the really deep thinkers uh, on, on this subject. Kat, uh, this is B1. And we're doing other things. The light bulb, uh, they got rid of the uh, light bulb that people got used to. The new bulb is many times more expensive. And I hate to say it, it doesn't make you look as good. Of course, being a vain person, that's very important to me. <laughs> it's like, uh, it gives you an orange look. I don't want an orange look. <laughs> has, has anyone noticed that? <laughs> so we'll have to change those bulbs at at least a couple of rooms where I am in the White House. <laughs> we have a situation where we're looking very strongly at sinks and showers and other elements of bathrooms where uh, you turn the faucet on in areas where there's tremendous amounts of water, where the water rushes out to sea because you could never handle it, and you don't get any water. You turn on the faucet, you don't get any water. 
they take a shower and water comes dripping out. It's dripping out, very quietly dripping out. People are flushing toilets 10 times, 15 times, as opposed to once. They end up using more water. So EPA is looking at that very strongly, at my suggestion. That, of course, was Mr. Noam Chomsky. No, it wasn't. It was uh, President Trump. And so, um, Daniel, this is uh, part of a a larger conversation, uh, but he seems to often hold center stage talking about that kind of false incrementalism. First, they came for our light bulbs, then our shower heads, then our toilets. Now they want our gas stoves. So how do we break out of that particular style of rhetoric, which really kind of personalizes right down to the level of cooking and self-care these questions? Right. I think there's so many parallels with that quote that you played from President Trump, that we have this fear of a ban. They're going to come and take your gas stoves, even though there's no proposal at all to do anything with existing stoves. It was only one member of a five-member independent commission that even brought up the idea of what rules might be in place for new stoves. The White House says that President Biden is opposed um, to any sort of ban on stoves. So there's that fear of a ban. And there's also this mis- uh, information that's going out, often tied to um, some older, uh, less high quality versions of products that may have come out. So with light bulbs, for example, from that clip that you played, um, the alternatives to incandescent lights used to have a lot of problems with them. Those curly Q compact fluorescent lights were efficient, but the light was pretty terrible. They took a while to warm up and mercury inside. And so if your perception of changing light means that, then you're missing out on the fact that today's LED lights are not only even more efficient, but they give off better quality light, much more tunable, dimmable. Um, they don't get as hot. There's so many reasons why I switched out all the lighting in my house to, to LEDs uh, because it's prettier, because it makes for, for a more appealing home. And I think those parallels carry over to the stove debate where people may have had bad experiences with, with old uh, coil stoves, but now uh, induction stoves offer, offer superior options option for heating and or for cooking. And even I'll, I'll admit, I use a, uh, a gas, uh, an electric stove, excuse me, that, um, isn't induction, but that performs great. It was one of the consumer reports, top rated models. And I cook just fine. It's a smooth glass top and heats up very quickly. So, uh, often you can tie into these emotions, tie into to misperceptions about old versions of what was out there and it can stoke up public opposition to these changes. The other thing that I wonder, and, and obviously this is, I'm painting with kind of a broad brush here, but I'm wondering if it's generally speaking a mistake to let words like ban creep into the conversation. When you look at what we've done with solar, and what we've done with electric cars, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's just about incentivization, right? Uh, if you do this, you get that discount, you get that tax uh, reduction, you get, uh, in other words, we're to give you something if you do this thing that we kind of hope that you'll do just for uh, other public policy-driven reasons. And, and, and it seems to me there's less room for Fox News or, or Jim Jordan or somebody to jump in there uh, and say, here comes big government taking away our stuff again. Yeah, I cringed when I heard um, Commissioner Trumpka use the word ban because I knew this was going to inflame the culture wars yet again. Um, we don't need a ban. We've got an Inflation Reduction Act that passed um, very generous incentives to make it much easier for people to 
switch over to heat pumps, to switch over to induction cooking, switch over to a wide range of options that can um, make their homes far more energy efficient and have far less emissions than they did before. So to to interrupt this this great progress that we're making for this sideshow about a ban that's not actually going to happen was was very disappointing. So, you know, the reality of it is, as we keep saying, and as others have kept saying, this is a conversation really about new construction. So what kind of conversation about new construction is it? What kind of, uh, I mean, let's imagine that we could get it out of the current crevasse that it's toppled into, whether where it's this completely false narrative about government coming to take away existing in-home used gas stoves. Uh, it's really about future construction. What kind of conversation should that be so that people understand that and maybe embrace it? Yeah, so the President Biden and the United States have set a target of reaching net zero emissions by 2050, and it's the homes and neighborhoods that we build today that are going to be with us in 2050 and and many decades beyond that. And that's why we have such an opportunity to what we build out now, if if homes are built electric from the start with the most efficient appliances they can have, um, that avoids thousands of dollars per home in costs for extending out additional gas lines. It avoids the cost of needing to get HVAC contractors and plumbers and electricians to come in and replace and retrofit old appliances, all of this can be far, far cheaper and more efficient if it gets designed in from the beginning. So that's where the real opportunity comes in is um, if we can get those savings, get those efficiencies, get things built right from the start, uh, it's going to be much easier than expecting people to tear out equipment from their existing homes at at many thousands of dollars of cost. Right. And, and you know, one of the pow- more powerful and more visceral pieces of rhetoric or, or elements of rhetoric is the idea of losing something, something being taken away from you. And so we've already established that that's not the case. But I know you believe that the rhetoric probably should focus more on the idea of a win or maybe even a win-win. Explain what you mean by that. Uh, If we're going to have the kind of new construction that you just described, uh, explain what the total win is. Yeah, it's a triple win. It's a win for the uh, pocketbook because it saves money by not needing to build out that extra gas infrastructure, not needing to to build those gas appliances that might uh, become outdated down the road. So you save far more and you get the energy savings up front. It's a win for health because the the biggest driver of pollution in our homes is, is burning stuff indoors. And so if we're not burning natural gas or propane or heating oil in the home, um, then our our health will be much better, especially for our children and, and sensitive elderly populations. And then the third benefit is for climate, is that the the natural gas, the propane, the heating oil that we burn in homes um, is not only a really big source of of climate warming pollution, but it's also really hard to replace. There aren't good substitutes uh, in terms of of biofuels. It's very, very hard to make a clean hydrogen in in the scales that would be needed to replace natural gas. So by moving to electricity, not only is it cleaner now, but it's going to keep getting cleaner in the future as we keep making electricity in cleaner and cleaner ways. You know, in a way, uh, uh, spurred partly by by Rebecca Rebecca's reporting on this, I was 
looking at some of those 1960s commercials that were often tied to the 1960 New York World's Fair. And it was sort of about the home of the future, and the home of the future is going to be so great, and it's going to have a gas stove in it. Um, But that rhetoric, the beginning part of that rhetoric, is probably not a bad idea for climate activists and, and and people concerned about climate change to begin embracing, right? The home of the future, the home of the future. Here's what it's going to be like, and it's going to be like better than the home of the present. And, and it seems to me that idea of betterment is one of the things that is not getting inserted into the conversation enough. Right. And gas stoves had their time and, and had their place. And I think it's important also to think about the international context of this, is that um, there are far worse options out there is that many people uh, still, because of no other options, have to cook over over gathered wood and dung and and solid uh, fuels in in many parts of the world, which which give off far more pollution in the homes or or cooking outdoors with a lot of smoke. And so gas stoves are are an improvement over that. Gas stoves are an improvement over types of coil electric stoves that existed in the 1950s. But, you know, in the 2020s, in um, in countries like the United States, we have far better options, far cleaner, far more efficient, um, far more affordable options. And so it's time, especially when it comes to designing uh, new homes and new neighborhoods, to, to be building them from the start for the best options available. But if you've ever been to that restaurant in the East Village where they do the cooking the old way with the dung, it really is a remarkable experience. I'm making that up. Uh, Daniel Cohen is an associate professor uh, of civil and environmental engineering at Rice University and the author of Confronting Climate Gridlock. Let's hope we make some uh, progress on that. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Colin. All right. We're going to take a little break. We're going to have one more conversation about kind of more the culture of cooking. Steam heat, I got. Steam heat, I got. But I need your love to keep away the cold They told me to shovel more coal in the boiler They told me to shovel more coal in the boiler They told me to shovel more coal in the boiler All right, time to say some thank yous, starting with Kat Pastor, who is not only the technical producer of the show, but apparently also uh, a distinguished political impressionist, um, based on the reading of the tweets. By the way, we were not able to share with you Kat Pastor reading a Jim Jordan tweet, but we're going to make that available during the next pledge drive for a gift of $40 or more. Uh, you'll be able to get your own. You have Kat Pastor really read any Jim Jordan tweet uh into your phone or something. Uh, all right. And also thanks to Lily Tyson. She is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show and the producer of this particular episode. And we're going to conclude with a conversation about why issues of the kitchen and stoves, perhaps um, you should pardon the expression, ignite passions more than, I mean, I don't know if Jim Jordan was trying to claim that someone was trying to take away your sofa and put another sofa in there. I don't think you'd have the same reaction. I would even argue, uh, and maybe I should introduce the guest here, uh, Megan Elias is going to join us, uh, a historian, a director of the gastronomy program and associate professor at Boston University. Boston University. Megan, I would even argue that with stuff like showerheads and, and low flush toilets and stuff like that, I mean, you can get people a little bit excited about those or LED light bulbs. But there's a way in which we saw this stove issue for a couple of weeks now become a hue and cry that seemed to, once again, be tr- 
kicking some kind of emotional, visceral, maybe atavistic tripwire inside people. So there's something about what goes on in the kitchen that's different from, you know, what goes on in the in the shower. Yes, definitely. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, I mean, it, the, the the main point is that the hearth is always the center of the home, right? So if you if you are going to, um, you know, you, you think about the home um, historically, the home is really the place around the fire. Um, you know, even before people were really living in in houses, they were they focused their their home life around fire. So I think that's part of it is just this very long historical connection between um, families and fire. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, when we think about this, I mean, these days we talk about water cooler conversations, <laughs> but the early water cooler conversations were campfire conversations, right? That's where information. Uh, you know, in our even in our prehistoric times, that's where communication probably took place the most: sitting around a fire, staying warm, and heating up and or cooking whatever fed. was available. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. So when so most of human history, most people have spent most of their time trying to get food and then to to cook it together. So, um, so it, yeah, it is something that is really sort of primal. But on top of that, we've added all kinds of layers of meaning and emotion and and sort of romance that the that you know the the man's home is his castle sort of stuff, and in the middle of the castle is is the is the kitchen. Um, and I, you know, I think obviously some of the some of this this kind of worry about about people coming to take away your stove is is a little mm, little odd because the people who are sort of shouting the loudest are probably not the people who are using the stoves the most, right? Um, but it's, it's uh, you know, just a, a way to kind of speak to people's, um, you know, their privacy, right? Your stove is in the middle of your house. It's it's the most private part in some ways. Right. Uh, I think I know what you're getting at, but we should probably put a <laughs> finer point on it. Although I do want to point out, I do 100% of the cooking in my house. But, um, uh, but yeah, at the top of this show, we played a, a clip from Fox News or Fox Business, I guess, where, you know, just to, to make it as obvious as they could, they had a woman – uh, business correspondent standing at a stove cooking eggs mm. or something while she d- explained to Bill Hemmer what this issue was all about. So, I mean, it struck me at the time, too, and I think this is part of what you're getting at. I mean, there, there might be a way in which you could get also women to join, women of a certain political stripe or, or a cultural stripe to join a political argument they might not have been so eager to join because, in fact, this is sort of a, a realm that in many households they rule over. Yeah, I think you could, but there's there's the, the complexity that there are also lots of corporations trying to sell people, sell women, particularly technologies to do their you know, domestic jobs better. So there's a little bit of a conflict, you know, it, do you really want people to be um, hanging on to something that means you can't sell them something new, right? Your your Viking range, right? That that's that was such a big deal because it it kind of reveals <laughs> reveals the flames even more than than kind of typical um, normal households, um, gas, you know, gas stoves. But it's it it might work, but I don't know if you could convince women that they need to stick by 
the old technology when there are all these sorts of new technologies out there. It, it might not be advantageous enough for um, for the makers of those things to allow that to happen. Listen, as the primary cook, or actually the kind of only cook in my, in my house, I'm using this as an excuse to lobby for an induction stove, or oh, just go, just go out and buy one. I mean, uh, you know. But anyway, yeah, you know, it just it, it does seem as though. Well, let's say one more thing about this, which is we have never before in our history been confronted with, or at least had the opportunity to be confronted with, so much video and film of people cooking. Uh, I mean, there are so many different cooking shows. Uh, Most of them involve celebrity chefs. uh, Plus, there's movies like The Menu and stuff like that. I mean, you Mm -hmm. can just watch this stuff all the time. And what you're going to see are gas stoves, right? In terms of the modeling, the imprinting, at least the most recent tranche of models and imprinting, it's all about gas stoves. That's what the real cooks use. That's the message we get over and over again. But that's not really true, right? Lots right. of um, lots of professional chefs are, are switching to induction, uh, but it's it's the visual, of course, yeah. of the flame popping into existence and that whoosh sound that happens that's so appealing that says sort of like, okay, I'm cooking now, right? Um, and that is really it's not that long um, in the history of cooking that that's been the the sign that something is happening, right? Something exciting is going on in the kitchen is that flame. Um, it's really only kind of a, a sort of 20th century phenomenon that, um, that that open flame means domestic cooking. And in fact, there was there was a lot of work um, done to close the flame inside because flames, you know, the open hearth cooking is, um, is difficult, but also really dangerous. People's clothes were always catching on fire and their children were always falling into the fireplace and there was ash everywhere. So the the sort of like hundreds of years effort to close the flame in. And then in the 20th century, the flame kind of bursts out and that becomes the symbol for, for really cooking right now. We're cooking with gas, that, that idea. Um, And it's not that it is in any way better. It's just more, um, there's more drama, right. To, to the open flame than there is to the induction plate or the, the electric coils. So there's a way in which we tamper with these things at our peril also because they're generationally communicated. You know, somebody cooks the way his or her mama cooked and mama cooked the way grandma cooked and this is all passed along and it's all observed in childhood and there are all these psychological and cultural linkages. Uh, One of the things that I was pointing out to Lily that I think she might have pointed out to you uh, is that a couple of years ago, Giorgio Parisi, an Italian theoretical physicist uh, and I think a no, he's a Nobel Prize winner. He he pointed out to his fellow Italians that you could actually save a little bit of energy on cooking pasta if you just change the pattern a little bit. You yeah. you, you get things to a, a boil, you put the pasta in, you get it to a boil again, you wait two minutes and then you turn it off and you wait one more minute than the recommended cooking time. And people acted as though he was talking about using puppies as a food source. I mean, it was just, <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the right, response right, right. was was a well, hard backlash. Tell me what you sense in yeah. all that. Well, that's I think that's because, um, you know, and anyone who's listening will kind of have this sort of physical reaction to that idea. I think it's because you learn so much of cooking, not through words, but through feel. So, you know, anthropologists and food call this embodied knowledge you learn what it feels like to wait for spaghetti and how that's different for you know from waiting for orecchietti you you get that kind of internal clock for all of these things and if someone tells you that that doesn't work anymore they're telling you that you're wrong that your body is wrong and how do you relearn all of those things 
that you don't even know how you learned, right? It's part of that embodied knowledge comes along unconsciously. And it's so, it's so valuable to people. It's their trick, right? It's their knack. It's, it's, it's something that they, um, that they understand about themselves and their relationship to food and to the, you know, the preparations they can do for their family that, that makes them special. And so to say, oh, it's, you know, it's no big deal. You just, your timing is different. It really is a big deal. It's, it's hard to figure out how you would undo that. It would be like, you know, oh, you're walking wrong. Everybody's walking wrong. We have to walk differently now. Yeah. It's not that hard. I mean, I actually <laughs> already made that adjustment adjustment with no help from a Nobel Prize winner. I mean, I've already realized <laughs> there's a certain point where you just sort of turn the heat off and let some of the, you know, heat be communicated by the remaining. It's not that hard to figure out. But but it is, it does involve violating some kind of ingrained way of having done something. I also want to tell yes. people who are non-cooks, orakieti means little ears. It's the pasta that looks like little tiny ears. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so that's okay. I just like, you know, we're not a cooking show, so I can't assume anything about <laughs> the audience. I'm sorry. We, we, we lied to you to get you on the show. So, um, so the last thing I think we have time for is the notion of progress. I mean, as addicted as we are to the way that we've always done things, we're equally drawn to the open flame of progress. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so, I mean, you know, the, everybody wants the kitchen of the future. Everybody wants 50 grand to remodel their kitchen. So it's sort of weird. There's a sort of tension between that and don't you dare tamper with what I've had for X number of years. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that? Yeah, I think that the, the sticking point is that a lot of our idea about how our kitchen should be is not necessarily based on our actual sense of utility, but on consumer culture and all of the class messages, all of the, the status messages in implements and in, in even setups and colorings and kitchen. And if you go on Pinterest and look at people's kitchen boards, it's just, it's endless. Um, so uh, we're, we're not sure who we should be listening to. And we have not often listened to kind of sustainability experts in this conversation. It's mostly been between the individual, their, you know, the, the show that their neighbors put on, the, and then the, the magazines and the, um, it, you know, Instagram posts. So we, we get a lot of messages about what's new, and what's new might not even be new technology, but a new kind of look, a new kind of um, way of even talking or feeling about, um, about our, our kitchen spaces. So it's it's not just that we want progress and we want the familiar. We want a lot of things all at once, and they're they they're kind of they always have been kind of contradictory, right? We always want the latest, but we always want what we know. We want what our neighbor has, but we want what feels good to us. So it's it it's not you know for all the hearth being the sort of place of of you know refuge, it 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 is a place of of uh, cultural politics too. Right. I, it's, it's so much of what we see and, and, and learn from our own culture. I mean, Not For Nothing is one of the most popular shows, Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the implication of hell is heat and flames and stuff like that. So you need sort of the greener uh, Gordon Ramsay. I don't know what that would look like, but somebody <laughs> should be working on that. Well, listen, thank you so much for, for joining you. us today. Uh, Megan Elias is a historian, director of the gastronomy program uh, and associate professor at Boston University. We'll leave you now with some Italian cooking advice. Sing Vita Bella. Vita 